to be for next week. How many feel pretty confident about this one? <laughs> but you feel confident that you'll be there a week from now. Yes. It will be, yeah, even though it feels like it should be 100, it'll be about 50 questions, just just as usual. Because I, I, what I'm trying to do is focus on the, the most important concepts and not test too much of the minutia. A little bit of that might creep in there, so you have to forgive me for that. But, uh, about 50 items. All right, so these are the topics that will be on the exam and what we'll cover here today. For the antivirals, it's just those last two drugs, right? Acyclovirig and cyclovirig. Could be other drug names you come across, but those won't be the right answer to anything. So we're going to start right now with antibiotics and work our way through these, just like we talked about them in class. So we have the 63-year-old woman, history of high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, seen for suspected pneumonia, empiric therapy, to the coverage of which of the following? on an exam, but I can do it here. So you really want to cover everything except Klebsiella. Right? In your differential, the things you're thinking about that could cause her infection, certainly strep is high up on the list, but I'm not going to get to differentiating that. I want you to be thinking big picture. What are all the possibilities? And it's almost everything that's up there. So maybe not so fair, but I thought it'd be fun to do. All right, and then what would you use to treat? Otherwise stated, which of these drugs will cover almost everything up here except maybe Klebsiella? There's, again, more than one answer. Azithromycin would do that. What else? Doxycycline would do that. Anything else? And levofloxacin would do that. Right. So any one of those three drugs would work in the majority of cases. Now, there could be some penicillin-resistant or macrolide-resistant strep pneumo that we're dealing with, but we don't know that yet, and we can't make the assumption that that's the case. And this person doesn't yeah. seem to have risk factors for drug-resistant strep pneumo, in which case you jump right to levo. But any one of those three at face value should work. Moxicillin is not going to be good for what? Atypicals. It's not going to help you with atypicals, right? There'll be zero coverage for atypicals. Mycoplasma that doesn't rely on a cell wall is not going to be affected by cell wall active agents. And what about phospholysin? It's a drug that's exclusively used for urinary tract infections. It doesn't have a role here. So in the case of phospholysin, I'm not going to hold you to how that drug works, but I may hold you to where it's used. The others, mechanisms are all in play should be familiar with the mechanisms and what families each of those drugs apply to. And so this is, the, this is the picture that tells the story of those previous two questions. 
if it's community-acquired pneumonia, what are the organisms that you're thinking about, just in general? Young and old, the differential goes one way or the other. But in general, what are all the things you're thinking about? And then what are the potential treatments? Macrolide or doxy, one or the other. And then respiratory quinolone, if you think there's higher risk for resistance. That's really what it comes down to. Number two, option B, a little bit too specific. I'm not going to get into a question that's going to ask you to know that you have to use a combination in a certain scenario. <coughs> At least not for this. All right, the bacteria that you may come across for which you need to recognize and be familiar with what we usually use to treat them are listed here, all but one. So the staph and strep species, including what we do if it's MRSA, strep, how that's typically treated, what the drug of choice is, and then strep pneumoniae, all the things we just talked about, is what could potentially be useful and where we might go if we suspect that there's drug resistance, strep pneumo, in the community. In which case, respiratory quinolone and levofloxacin is our prototype. The atypicals, mycoplasma at the top of that list, and what that means. So we'll active agents versus not in terms of what would be useful. C. diff, how we typically will treat that. What are the drugs that are in play? Metronidazole, vancomycin if oral, fecal transplant. There's one other one in there. Deficit, right? Fidaxomycin. Increasingly, what you're seeing in the hospital is going right to Banco and a lower threshold for using fidaxomycin. Metronidazole is not as effective as it used to be for treating C. diff, but it's, it's not obsolete. It's just not used as often as it used to be. And if it's Banco, it's got to be oral. Then Pseudomonas, what are these anti-pseudomonal agents we've talked about? What are they? Epercillin-tazobactin was one of the first we talked about. Meropenem and the other car most of the other carpenems will cover pseudomonas. Maybe not the best choice, but provide coverage. Cephapheme of the cephalosporins. As trianam was as well. As trianam was that beta-lactam-like drug that doesn't look completely like a beta-lactam. It's lacking that five or six-membered ring on the side of the beta-lactam ring. That also has really good gram-negative coverage, including pseudomonas. What else? Talked about today, although wasn't emphasized. Aminoglycosides. Aminoglycosides have really good activity against pseudomonas. We don't use them as much because of the toxicity profile and they're so complicated to use. One of the reasons why they maintain such great efficacy is because we don't use them as much as we possibly could because we're just not comfortable with them. And we have other options we can go to first. And then tuberculosis, recognizing the types of drugs that we use and the fact we use them together. Right? Drugs like isoniazid, rifampin, and then there are a couple of others too, but there's certainly those two are important. They're features. Isoniazid and what we worry about, and rifampin, what we worry about in terms of either monitoring or counseling related advice. All right, this 51-year-old woman with an intestinal infection <laughs> This case, due to Giardia, taking an antibiotic that's causing dysgeusia. What is that? Altered taste. In this case, a metallic taste. What type of adverse effect to antibiotics is she experiencing? 
Yeah, which of these three? Toxic. Is this allergic? No. Is this biologic? No. This is toxic. Yes. It's a, it's a traditional drug-related side effect. Um, the one other thing that it might be useful, I can't remember if it's going to show up or not, but the organism is Borrelia burgdorferi, which you probably won't see that name, but you'll recognize it better by Lyme disease. Yeah, you may see that come up. And what the drug of choice is? And the concerns around using doxycycline, more likely. Just some of the counseling points and what some of the interactions or side effects could be. All right. Which of the following is common to these four drugs? They all provide coverage of gram-positive organisms. They all work by inhibiting cell wall synthesis. They're all administered orally. They're all beta-lactamase inhibitors, or they all work against bacterial ribosomes. These are all cell wall synthesis inhibitors, and they all belong to what family? They're in the beta-lactam family, they're not beta-lactamase inhibitors. Remember, the beta-lactamase inhibitor is added to your beta-lactam to protect it against resistant mechanisms. What's an example of a beta-lactamase inhibitor? <coughs> the tazobactam that's combined with piperacillin. Or the clavulinic acid that's combined with amoxicillin. That's in augmented. Yeah, those are two common. There's a bunch, but those are the two most common. All right, so for the beta-lactams, we have this mix of agents, traditional penicillin or amoxicillin, anti-staphylococcal, which is oxicillin or anything else in that family. What was the first? Diclox is an oral option. This is where methicillin used to reside. And then anti-pseudomonal, as you mentioned, that would be ticarcillin, but also has trianam. Cephalosporins, as you move across the generations, how do things change? You move. I think you all had the right, it's just different timing. So you move from good gram positive activity to much better gram negative activity, and then by the time you get the fifth generation, sort of like downloading an app, you've come full circle, and now you're back to good gram positive activity, but it's even better than when you started. And then. Um, the carapenems, what stands out here? Meropenem is the prototype. And pretty broad spectrum of activity. Ideal drugs to use empirically in people who are hospitalized and really sick, but you haven't quite isolated down what is causing the illness specifically. What do we worry about more with this class than the others? Toxicity and that specifically being neuro neurotoxicity. Yeah, the therapeutic window for these drugs isn't quite as large as other beta-lactams. And so dose adjustment for impaired kidney function becomes even more relevant for the carapenems, at least some of them. And then monobactam, we talked about this structurally unique beta-lactam that has good gram-negative activity. And then here are the names that you should be familiar with. So. It sounds like you already are, so recognize each of these as the prototypes. I think I got them all right. You correct me if I'm wrong. All right, if you were to take cephalexin and change the structure to the right or left of the beta-lactam ring, in this case both ways, what are you potentially changing about your drug? 
You are changing potentially the pharmacokinetics, meaning how it's absorbed, where it distributes, how it's cleared. All those could potentially be changed. You could also be changing the pharmacodynamic activity, what the spectrum of activity of the drug is. And that certainly happens in this case. You go from cephalexin, which is the drug that's administered always by mouth, maybe topically, but always by mouth, not given intravenously, and usually three or four times a day, and it treats mostly gram-positive organisms, to a drug that's always given parenterally, ceftriaxone, and is on average better for gram-negatives than gram-positives. Not exclusive, but mutually exclusive, but that's in traditionally where it fits. And how often? Usually once a day. <coughs> Most infections, one injection once a day is all it takes. All right, so this 55-year-old man presents abscess on his left thigh. It's red, swollen, painful, warm to touch. What do you want to do to this? I'm going to cut that open and drain it. Looking forward to that? Yeah. <laughs> Are there chances to do that yet? No. Some of you want to do it. All right, so we culture this, and this is what grows. What would you label this? Polycolon. We label it a staph aureus infection. What else would we call it? We would call it MRSA, right? Because of? It's resistant to oxacillin, which is in the same family as methicillin, so this would be labeled in someone's medical record as MRSA. The lab might not call it that outright, because it's implied that that's what it is when you see oxacillin resistance. So what would be the ideal choice? Provided there are no intolerances, the best choice would be, would be Bactrim. A, a close second might be a tetracycline like doxycycline. In this case, it appears that both of those should be effective. We could use tetracycline, but we prefer doxy because it's easier. Tetracycline's four times a day. Doxy's just twice a day. And like we did for that UTI case in class, where it was cefazolin sensitive, but we used cephalexin, we're doing the same thing here. Tetracycline sensitive, we're using doxycycline. We're making the assumption that if one is sensitive, the other should be sensitive. And in many cases, you can do that. There are some you can, but many that's suitable to do. Who wants to use Venco? Nobody? Not yet, because more than is necessary, right? This, this person, I haven't told you more about them, but if they're able to take oral medicines, usually this infection will respond to oral therapy. No need to go to vancomycin yet. If we did, what would we have to do with it? Give it intravenously, which is probably at least a couple days of mission to get things started. And that's probably unnecessary. And what if this becomes not MRSA, but, but what? What if it becomes this? What then? <laughs> Maybe linazolid, yeah, which is why that's a good drug to be familiar with. It doesn't mean linazolid is always going to work, but that's one situation where that might be used. What you are more likely to encounter, fortunately this is fairly rare in this country so far, but you are likely to encounter this.
besides your credit card, VISA, which is an intermediate, right, vancomycin intermediate susceptible Staph aureus. And there is some of that out there, even in the city of Boston. All right, so 24-year-old man, seen primary care, complains of respiratory illness. He's given a prescription for antibiotic to take for the next five days. It has mostly GI-related side effects. Rarely it's been reported to cause cardiotoxicity. A drug with what mechanism was most likely given to this patient? Disease. inhibition of 50S ribosome. What, what drug are you thinking of? Right. What you wanted to see was a list of the drug options and circle the drug. I didn't give that to you. <laughs> You, you have the right drug in mind, right? Macrolide antibiotics, and they work. They work by targeting the larger of the two subunits. So that's right. D inhibition of 50S ribosome. So beta lactamase inhibitor. What that? What might that do? That's consistent with this case. GI side effects, right? The clavulonic acid that's added to augmenting causes quite a bit of diarrhea. So that is a potential side effect, but that's not the therapeutic agent by itself, and it's not known to produce cardiotoxicity. What's a mycolic acid inhibitor? You might not know this. I slipped it in there, but didn't expect you to remember it. Isoniazid. Isoniazid. Yeah, isoniazid. Good. Isoniazid was a derivative of a drug called iproniazid. A drug being studied for. CNS purposes and is known to be an MAO inhibitor. If ipronizid is an MAO inhibitor and isoniazid is a derivative, what does that mean? Cardiotoxicity. Not cardiotoxicity. Well, I guess you could say cardio, cardiovascular effect as a result of drug interactions, but there might be some weak MAO inhibitor properties of isoniazid. Anyway, not relevant here. And then, um, 30 S ribosomes. Tetracyclines work there. Not known to be cardiotoxic. And the aminoglycosides. Of all the toxins they have, not known to be cardiotoxic. It wouldn't be used in this setting. And then transpeptidase inhibitor, that is... That's... Yeah, that's, that's the penicillin and other beta-lactams. That's the penicillin binding protein. And not consistent with this case either. So the answer is D. And then here, here is our old friend, the ribosome. So the drugs that work on the larger subunit, things like macrolides, most important. What else works on that side? The ketolides, we almost never see them used, but they do work on that side. Clarithromycin being our one ketolide. Clindamycin is another important drug that works on that side. And then, not as important because we don't use it in this country, but chloramphenicol works on that side. Works as the smaller side we just talked about. There's tetracyclines and neoglycosides mostly. Their spectrums are different, but their target site is the same. So these are the protein synthesis inhibitors that we've covered. You starting to feel better? Right? It's starting to come together. All right, 25-year-old, otherwise healthy man presents with these symptoms. Throat culture is consistent with streptococcus infection. What are you thinking about? 
Penicillin is the drug of choice. And before we get to that, we want to do what? Check for allergies, right? Get that out of the way early on so that you don't forget to do it. I tell you that story about when I first started working here? No. So I was, I was just like Monica. I was doing a residency here. And my first rotation was with administration. And um, my boss at the time, he basically spent your time just following all the different managers in the department. So he summons me to his room. He wanted me to witness this interaction that was going to occur. And he was meeting with one of the evening pharmacists. So I didn't really know well because I'd just been here a few weeks myself. And so I walk in, and this guy's there sitting at the table. And my director, Bill, and his assistant director, Ed, and these two other guys, and the, the, a woman and a man, pretty well dressed. I didn't know. They weren't anyone I had seen in the, in the pharmacy department before today. And what they were doing is um, they were talking to this pharmacist about how he was going to be relieved of his duties. He was essentially being fired. And what had happened was that he had approved an order for a cephalosporin to go to the floor in a patient who had an allergy history to penicillins in their chart. And I thought, wow, it's hopeless for me. <laughs> All he did was let that order leak through. It never got to the patient. There was no actual harm done. But the order got through, like penicillin allergy, and he approved it, and it reached the floor. So I was like, this is not the field for me. <laughs> uh, and it turned out this was just the latest transgression in a series of things that had gone bad. And there was a whole plan laid out. I didn't realize at the time. He, he let me like sweat it out for three hours after that before he gave me the whole story. <laughs> that was his way of teaching me how important it was to be vigilant about medications. Um, and so that was like the last straw for this guy. So anyway, since that day, I've been trying to make a habit of asking about allergies first and get it out of the way so I don't forget about it. And the other two people in the suits, they were there from risk management to document everything. All right, so anyway, the good news, 68-year-old man in the hospital receiving antibiotic therapy with IV vancomycin. Which of the following applies? Clearance is primarily hepatic. Dose is based on ideal body weight. It inhibits DNA gyrase. It should be avoided if there's a history of penicillin allergy, or drug plasma levels will be monitored. E. E. So one of the places where we do intense pharmacokinetic monitoring, we take what we talk about in the classroom and apply it to the, in the clinical arena, is for aminoglycosides and vancomycin. They're done all the time. If you're fortunate, you're working in an institution that has good clinical pharmacy services that can help you interpret those levels and make decisions about what to monitor and when to do it and how to make those adjustments. But occasionally, you'll come across scenarios where you don't have those kind of resources at your disposal. And so there's going to be a question on the exam where you just have to pick the right dose out of a list. And what you need to do is figure out which of the different weights that are given are the right weights to choose to make the dose determination. Okay? If it's vancomycin and you're given an ideal body weight and a total body weight, which is the right dose? The total body weight. Vancomycin distributes throughout the entire body, so you want to calculate the dose based on the entire patient's body weight. If it's aminoglycoside, where is that drug going? 
it's not going very far, right? Small volume distribution, it's going mostly to the ideal body weight. If they're really obese, about 40% of that extra weight is water-based tissue to which that drug can go. So there's that adjustment that's made. Not that you need to memorize the formulas for anything. You just need to know, is it the total weight or something less than that that's going to be used to base your dose? And with glycoside, it's going to be something less than that. If they're not too far from their ideal body weight, it's going to be their ideal body weight. If they're much larger than that, it's going to be something in between. All right, for these others, clearance, primarily hepatic, it's not. It's primarily through the kidney. The primary determinant of half-life for myoglycosides or banco is what? Is kidney function, right? If kidney function is impaired, your half-life is going to be longer. Inhibits DNA gyrase. What's that? That's where the quinolones work, the fluoroquinolones, and the, the supercoiling of the DNA. They're gonna, the DNA is going to collapse back up if DNA gyrase is inhibited, and thus you stop protein synthesis. And then if there's a penicillin allergy, where does Vanco fit? It's one of our drugs of choice. Systemic infection, severe enough to warrant hospitalization. A penicillin's where you would go, but there's a severe penicillin allergy. Maybe vancomycin is the drug you use. No cross-reactivity. All right, so the Vanco alternatives, linazolid, because you're likely to encounter it. Not only does it have slightly better activity, it also allows us to do what? Give it orally and treat patients in an easier way in the ambulatory setting. It comes with a price tag, and you don't want to blow through that drug because there's nothing left after we get to linazolid-resistant staph aureus. But... It does have a drug of pretty significant importance. I mean, they all are important drugs, but we're not going to hold you to the other ones at this point. All right, this scenario here, 36-year-old woman given a prescription for Bactrim to treat urinary tract infection. Which of the following do you recommend? Avoid taking with milk or antacids. Baseline electrocardiogram. Double the dose if one is missed. Do people do that? All the, all the time. Not, not because they should, because they do. Minimize sun exposure or stop taking once symptoms resolve. We talked about this earlier today, and certainly we covered this class. We don't worry about electrocardiogram. We don't worry about these drug-food interactions with milk and acids. What drugs do we have this concern for? The chelation types of interactions, tetracyclines, and a bunch of the quinolones, too. So be thinking about those kinds of interactions. The other thing to think about when it comes to antibiotics is special populations. Like, were there any concerns about using antibiotics in pediatrics? Yes. Yeah, there were a couple instances where that came up, right? So be familiar with that. Stop taking once symptoms resolve. What's the dilemma there? The most difficult to treat organisms are the ones that might be left behind. But um, I feel like you're getting somewhat mixed consensus on when to use penicillin, like the original penicillins, in that, like you said, for someone with systemic disease in the hospital, you might go for penicillin, and then later go if there's some sort of issue. Do yeah. people still grab for the original penicillins? 
Um, yes. So if it's a methicillin susceptible Staph aureus that's causing pretty significant illness, your best choice is either penicillin or oxacillin. Even though vancomycin is available, if it's sensitive Staph aureus, those drugs are even better than vanco. But if there's allergy, then you can't go there. And so maybe that scenario is what I was talking about. It's not often, but it happens. All right, 56-year-old man, hospitalized with bacterial infection, started on IV gentamicin. Plasma monitoring's ordered, reminds you of vancomycin. What other properties do these drugs have in common? Their mechanism of action, their spectrum of activity, their volume of distribution, their side effect profile, or their concentration-dependent activity? E. We didn't address E, so I can understand why you might guess that. But the answer is, the answer is D. Yeah. Their side effects are comparable, which are what? At least the, two of the big ones. Nephrotoxicity and phototoxicity. Those overlap. It's more severe with aminoglycosides, but the same kinds of side effects occur with vancomycin. Now what's unique is vancomycin also causes what? The red man's infusion-related reaction, right? This histamine-mediated phenomenon that's related to concentration and volume. All right, this last concept here is concentration-dependent activity means what? The higher you can get your concentration of drug above the minimum inhibitory concentration of the organism, the better the efficacy is. Right? Up here is okay. Up here is even better. Off the chart is ideal. And then you allow the drug to be removed from the body as long as it takes to get rid of it. If you can maximize this what's called peak to MIC or peak to trough ratio, get those highs really peak, uh, really high, get the peaks really high, you get improved efficacy. That's true of aminoglycosides. It's true of a few other therapies like quinolones too. Most drugs, it's the time-dependent killing. And Monica talked about this. She just used a, a, a couple of graphs that were built into one of her slides to do this. With the, the beta-lactams, it's time-dependent killing. It doesn't matter how high you are above the MIC, it's that you're above it for most of the dosing interval. You could be one-fold higher, you could be two-fold higher, you could be ten-fold higher. Efficacy is the same. So you want to just make sure that your levels aren't falling below the MIC for too many hours during the day. And that's true for beta-lactams, it's also true for vancomycin. So that last answer there, it's not the same. Concentration dependent for aminoglycosides, more beta-lactam-like, which is also more mechanistic-like, for vancomycin. Time above the MIC. If this is the case, we want to minimize the amount of time that you fall below the MIC, what might be the optimal way to administer this kind of drug? Infusion. Continuous infusion. Right? Just give it all the time. And while we don't do that, literally, we have moved into, for the severe infections that we use beta-lactams for, 
we have moved into an era where we're using like four or six hour infusions. Instead of giving a drug over 30 minutes like we used to, we give a drug like Piptazo for certain illnesses over the course of maybe four or six hours, taking advantage of this, of this concept. All right, other agents, quinolones, metronidazole, sulfonamides, nitrofurantone. Remember the, how those drugs work, at least for the first three, and then what some of the important features are, like how we use them, what the counseling points might be around metronidazole, what might that be? Avoid with alcohol. Isoniazin or rifampin, like I referred to a few minutes ago. We use them for TB. We use them to treat latent TB. We worry about neurotoxicity with isoniazin. We worry about body fluid discoloration with rifampin. And one other thing, drug-drug interactions due to enzyme induction. Right? This speeds up clearance of other drugs pretty dramatically. 25-year-old woman treated with treated for thrush, administered a drug that's administered topically and works by binding directly to fungal cell membranes. So which of the following must have been prescribed? Nystatin. Nystatin, right? You probably know it was nystatin even if you didn't know the mechanism, but that would be the drug that would be used. Caspofungin works in what way? Beta-1,3. It works on cell wall synthesis. Beta-1,3 glucan synthase. Yeah. Fluconazole works on ergosterol membrane formation, systemically or topically, but mostly systemically. Fluconazole is not used topically, but there are other azoles that are. Nystatin binds directly to the membrane and causes disruption of the integrity and is only used topically. What happens if you give nystatin and hope for it to treat a systemic illness? It doesn't get absorbed, right? And too toxic to give IV. What's the IV alternative? Amphotericin. Amphotericin, which is, is pretty terrible in side effects. Terbinafine, where does that work? Squalene epoxidase, right? So again, it's targeting the cell wall membrane and disrupting that. Mostly used for skin and nail type of infections. And then Fibavirol is not a drug I asked you to remember, but it's a relatively new drug that's used topically to treat nail fungus. All right, so these are not all of the drugs that I had in the summary side last week, but I narrowed it down just to make it easier for you. So be familiar with each of these drug names and their families and what some of the more important features would be. Like the fact that a drug targets the cell wall, castrofungin, means what? Relatively safe to human cells, right? So probably the safest of all of these. We reserve it for severe infections due to Canada or Aspergillus. For the azole antifungals, we worry about liver cytochrome interactions, liver function tests. Yeah, exactly. The toxicities of ampho. Certainly good to know what the toxicities of amphotericin are. Right, 45-year-old woman about to receive a transplanted kidney. The donor is known to be positive for cytomegalovirus, which means we need to prophylax against that in the recipient. Which of the following is prescribed for those purposes? Valgenciclovir, okay. eh? That's the answer. Valgenciclovir is a drug of choice to treat or prevent CMV. What is tenofovir? A drug for HIV that specifically works by, for what family does it belong to? The NRTIs, right, that first group. 
Foscarnet is an alternative drug for CMV that I didn't ask you to remember. It wouldn't be used up front, but would have value. It would have efficacy in this patient that's more aggressive than the need. Darunavir is also not a drug I asked you to remember, but it is commonly used. What is that? Anyone know? What family do you think it belongs to? Or what does it treat? Viruses. HIV. Yeah, it's a protease inhibitor. And then acyclovir, if, if we're trying to prevent herpes, herpes simplex, then this would be your drug, <coughs> acyclovir, but that's not what we're dealing with. All right, 22-year-old man, newly diagnosed HIV, started on a combination of drugs. Which of the following is a known mechanism of action for at least one of the drugs? Sort of similar to what I was mentioning earlier, type of side question I might ask. So inhibition of chemokine type 4 receptors, Inhibition of viral cell maturation and budding, inhibition of viral cell wall synthesis, or inhibition of beta 1 3 glucan synthesis? Okay, pretty easy, right? If you see this again, it's probably going to be stepped up just a little bit in terms of level of difficulty. So the answer is B viral cell maturation and budding. What are we talking about there? Protease inhibitors, right? What's wrong with question A? It's the CCR5 subtype. I won't be that specific, but there's going to be a there's going to be a question like this. I'm pretty sure of it. All right. So then these phases, we can attack the entry of the virus. We can attack reverse transcriptase in two ways. We can attack integration of the virus, or we can attack assembly maturation in budding off to form new virus. And that's where protease becomes involved in that last step. 40-year-old woman, HIV, currently takes a combination pill that contains tenofovir, emtricitabine, efavirenz. What is the mechanism of action of that last ingredient? Boosting agent, integrase inhibitor, non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, Nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, protease inhibitor. It's asking a lot at this point, isn't it? <laughs> but the good news is since I've asked it now, probably swept this one under the, under the rug for the exam. So efavirenz is an NNRTI. It's a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. It's one of those drugs that binds directly to that enzyme and knocks it out. A boosting agent would be something like a little bit of ritonavir or cobicistat, with the primary difference being one has HIV activity and one doesn't, what that means for resistance. Integrase inhibitor, the drugs would have what in the name? Egrevir, right? They'd end in egrevir. So whether it's alvitegravir, raltegravir, dalutegravir, they all sort of sound alike. And the NRTIs, the ones I asked you to remember were AZT, Zidovidine, the combination that's in Truvada. It's pretty much those. All right, so these are the drugs in terms of name and category. What is less relevant is are the names on the right-hand side. Like, I'm not, 
it's good, I guess, to recognize the nomenclature, but it could be Elvitegravir, Raltegravir, as long as you can remember that Egravir product, it's working in that family of medicines. The entry inhibitors, knowing that that's a target, right? The three ways we can target the entry, the fusion, however it happens, the chemokine receptor, but the specific drug names I wouldn't worry about. This combination, conceptually what we're doing here, right? Two nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, an integrase inhibitor, and a boosting agent. For what purpose? Improve bioavailability, reduce pill burden, make it easier to treat HIV with multiple different drugs. All right, what's the side effect of tenofovir that I was hoping you would recall? This drug here. Flu symptoms for that family of drugs. And then another side effect that stands out. All right, I'm going to tell you this story. That's okay? One more? All right. So we had, we were running this study um, a number of years ago. When I first started in my site, we had a lot of patients with HIV. And it was um, at a time where we were running out of new options to treat patients. And we had this drug called adefavir. And we were studying it for HIV, trying to get patients who have become resistant to pretty much everything else or intolerant of everything else access to new therapy. So we were randomizing them into adefavir at either 60 or 120 milligrams to take one pill once a day. Adefavir was a cousin of a drug that we saw on a slide, but I didn't ask you anything about it, tell you anything about it. Sidofavir is an anti-CMV agent. Adefavir is a direct descendant of sidofavir. Sidofavir is incredibly toxic to the kidneys. Almost everyone who gets this drug will experience kidney damage. So we only give it once every twice, once every other week. <laughs> every other week is how that drug is dosed to minimize the kidney damage. <coughs> only given parenterally. There is no oral version. So what do you think that means for adefavir? There's, there's a considerable amount of nephrotoxicity, which is why the two doses were 60 or 120. Can we get by with just 60 and spare the kidneys? And by the end of this study, we enrolled about 30 patients on our end into this. Everyone but one of them were dose reduced to 30 milligrams because of what? Kidney toxicity. We didn't even know if that dose worked for HIV. But there was so much kidney toxicity showing up with the Defavir at the higher doses, everyone was reduced to 30 milligrams. Everyone but one. So 30 patients, 29 dose reduced, one was not. What was different about that one? The answer is almost too obvious. They all had HIV, all with advanced HIV. Most of them now have deceased. This patient, ironically enough, had his brother died of HIV. He saw firsthand what the outcome would be. How is it that almost 100% of patients nephrotoxic, but not him? He wasn't taking it. He's happy to come pick it up every month, but he wasn't taking it. And thus, he had no nephrotoxicity. He had nephrotoxicity if you don't take the drug. But of course, he died as a result of complications from his infection a few years later. The reason I point that out is because adefavir was then tabled. We said, this isn't going to work for HIV, but let's develop a new version of it, and that was tenofovir. And so we owe that history of adefavir to tenofovir. 
a drug that's a derivative of defibir, right? So now we're two steps removed from sidofibir, still nephrotoxic, but nowhere to the same degree. And so that's the story that I was hoping that maybe will help you remember that tenofovir is a nephrotoxic drug. It's a cousin of these very, very toxic nephrotoxic agents. But overall, not something we have to worry about as long as we monitor appropriately. And is used all over the place. The most commonly used for drug for HIV today is tenofovir. All right, I think that might, is that the end? Hope so. <laughs> all right, that's it. So good luck in your preparations. Reach out if you need to. I just can't promise how quickly I can get back to you. I'll see you about a week and a half. Have a good rest of the week. Thank you.